before I actually get into character and do this, uh, the book, Captain Ron and the Frontier Infantry in Montana, is available here. Uh, so it's a shameless plug there. Now, typically, uh, what I do at this point, uh, someone introduces me as Major Ron has just been promoted. The year is 1884, and he's been asked to reminisce about his experiences uh, from the Civil War uh, and through the Nez Perce. So I'm going to cut it short. I have very limited time here, so I'm going to concentrate on the, his uh, time out here in western Montana. And as long as I have the hat on, I am Major Charles Ron. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's indeed a very great pleasure to be back here in uh, uh, this in Hamilton now after after seven years. It gives me, quite frankly, quite a number of chills to take a look at some of these mountains that became so very familiar. Uh, were so very dangerous to us back in 77. Now, the 7th Infantry, we were first posted to the frontier following reconstruction. We arrived at Fort Shaw, up near the Great Falls of the Missouri, in 1872. Now, we had a number of experience. Well, almost immediately, we were involved in the Yellowstone Expedition, which involved that great battle against uh, Sitting Bull and the Sioux down there at Pryor's Creek. We were involved, certainly, with the uh, Great Sioux Wars of 75 and 76, the Montana Column under Colonel Gibbon. Uh, but what really I want to address is what happened out here in the valley uh, seven years ago with the Nez Perce. Now, in the spring of 77, the Nez Perce went on the warpath. At least the five non-treaty bands of the Nez Perce, along with some Palouse and Calusa. Now, it had taken a very, very long time to drive the Nez Perce on the warpath. They had been a very peaceful nation for eternity. It's their proud boast that they had never shed white man's blood. Uh, they had helped, they, they saved the Lewis and Clark expedition. But through the, through the century, increased depredations, uh, cheating by white miners and settlers, the abrogation of treaty rights, uh, mistreatment, uh, non-comprehending missionaries, all this eventually drove those five tribes to rebellion on the warpath in the spring of 77. Now, that area out in central Idaho was part of the Department of the Columbia under General Oliver O. Howard, who was not my commander. My commander out here is General Terry up at uh, St. Paul. However, General Howard had been an excellent general during the War of the Rebellion. See, unfortunately, many of our officers learned the wrong lessons from that war. And while he had been a great general during the War of the Rebellion, which was set battles, it's like moving chess pieces, that has nothing to do with the way war is fought out here with the Indians. So General Howard is going to be outfought, outmaneuvered the entire campaign. Uh, the Nez Perce have a name for him called General Day After Tomorrow Howard because he is late for everything. 
Now, while this is going on in central Idaho, and the Nez Perce are running rings around the general, uh, June 9th, I was sent with two companies from Fort Shaw to Missoula to start the construction of a brand new fort there. We arrived on June 25th. Now, this is one year to the day after General Custer's defeat at the Little Bighorn. And we of the 7th were the first white men on that field. So we remember that. We, re we remember what happened to our brethren. The butchery, the mutilation, the scalping. And this is going to come very close to us during this coming, upcoming campaign. Now, very shortly after I arrived, we certainly were following what was going on in Idaho, but we got orders that I was to stop the Nez Perce. General Howard had finally figured out that the Nez Perce were heading over Lolo Pass. Now, we weren't sure where they were going at that time, but we knew they were headed over Lolo Pass. And at the end of that is that little town of Missoula, and I have my 49 men. Company A and I, that's all I had, and I was told by General Howard, who has overall command over the Nez Perce War, I was to stop the Nez Perce. Again, I had 49. First thing I did, I met with the Indian agent, Peter Ronan, and we went to see uh, Chief Arley of the Jocko Valley and Chief Charlotte up here in the Bitterroot in order to make sure that they were going to remain neutral through this upcoming fight. And fortunately for us, they agreed that that indeed was their stance at this point. They've been allies with the Nez Perce, but they understood what was actually going on in the power of the United States military. So, having obtained their assurance, and not only their assurance, about a dozen or so of their braves came to support me as volunteers. Also had about 150 volunteers from Missoula and the Bitterroot. So I would have about, oh, 170, 180, maybe, uh, people beside me. And I was facing now, as we figured, between 850 and 900 Nez Perce. A third of them, certainly warriors, and many more could actually fight if they had to fight. So even, even with all the volunteers, the odds were not favorable for us. First thing I did, we started digging rifle pits in Missoula, just in case. Uh, I also sent two companies, to, uh, two patrols, to find out exactly where the Nez Perce were and when they might be expected. Lieutenant Coolidge went out, didn't hear anything from him, so I sent out Lieutenant Woodbridge. They both came back, and the Nez Perce were indeed on the way. Now, <coughs> We now moved, on July 25th, I moved my forces to Lolo Canyon. There, I looked for where the narrowest defiles of the mountain were, where the, where the mountains come closest together. And there, my plan was to build entrenchments across that, and more or less, put the cork in the bottle to keep the Nez Perce from coming further. My hope was that General Howard would have figured out where the Nez Perce were, 
would expedite this progress and would attack the Nez Perce from the rear. That was my plan. Now, the next day, the Nez Perce arrived and set up camp about two miles to my west. For the next couple of days, we palavered. We had several uh, powwows with the chiefs, uh, facilitated uh, by you know, hand signals, and also we had uh, the half-breed Delaware Jim, uh, who helped, uh, helped me translate things with them. We never came to any type of agreement, and I always returned to the battlements confident that we were about to be attacked. Well, I that at one point, uh, your governor, uh, Governor Potts, showed up uh, to help with the negotiations. And I have to say that, like most politicians, he was pretty useless. Uh, however, he did go on record that it would be absurd for my forces to attack the Nez Perce. Well, as I say, this collaboration went on for several days. I was waiting for General Howard. The Nez Perce were looking for a way to get around. Now, I had scouted this, and I, with 900 Indians, with the sick, the wounded, the elderly, the very young, there was no way that 800, 900 Indians could get up the mountains and come around me. So I thought. <laughs> Now, the Nez Perce, somehow or other, got word behind my lines that Chief Looking Glass had promised that if the Nez, Nez Perce could get around peacefully, they would then proceed up the Bitterroot peacefully. The threat, unspoken, was that if they have to fight to get through my lines, they would win there's no doubt about it, then Missoula and the Bitterroot would be wide open for pillaging. So during the night, during the night, every single Bitterroot volunteer deserted. <laughs> and groups of 2 to 20, every single Bitterroot volunteer deserted as well about half of the Missoulians, who are now cowering in terror in Higgins' store. It was that night also that the Nez Perce found their way. They went up Sleeman's Ravine and came around and came down behind me. Now, some of you gentlemen may have had some military experience, but it looks like most of this audience has not. So here's a very easy strategic lesson. And that is, if you build your defenses for an enemy coming from the west, and that enemy shows up in the east, <laughs> this is not a good position to be in. It's not a good position for me and my men. It's not a good position for Missoula or the Bitterroot. So I ordered my men to turn about and offer battle. I was not going to initiate it. What I did not know at the time was that Looking Glass had told his braves, let the white man fire first. So nothing 
happened. And what passes for a newspaper in the town of Missoula <laughs> has decided to call this the affair at Fort Fizzle <laughs> and has demanded my court-martial. Now, fortunately, I have been supported throughout all of this by my superiors, Colonel Gibbon, head of the 7th Infantry, General Terry, General Howard, and even Governor Potts. So following, but there were, there were a few little altercations as the men first tried to make their way up, but they pretty much went up the Bitterroot in peace, buying supplies from the Bitterroot settlers and the merchants, including whiskey and including ammunition. I set a, a, a patrol under Lieutenant Stevens to follow the Nez Perce. The rest of us went back to Missoula. Lieutenant Stevens was to follow the Nez Perce and find out where they were going. Now, there were two options. They could turn east into the Big Hole Valley, a place where they traditionally take time, gather roots, relax before they move to the hunting grounds and the Crow, their allies in central Montana. <coughs> or they could loop around back west and go back into Idaho where their homeland was. We didn't know at the time. We had suspicions, but we weren't quite sure. Well, the Nez Perce turned east and settled into the big hole. Now, Looking Glass, their commander at the time, he refused to post any sentries around the encampment. They were at peace in Montana. They had left the war behind in Idaho, or certainly they would have been attacked at Lolo Canyon. And he refused to post sentries. He refused to let any of the other chiefs post sentries in case it might alienate some of the settlers. They were at peace. It was their time to rest and recover before their next push towards the Buffalo Grounds. He also undoubtedly realized that General Howard was days and days away, <laughs> which he was. But he was not aware that Colonel Gibbon had mobilized the entire 7th Infantry he had come from Fort Shaw, brought some of the forces from Fort Ellis. On August 4th, passed through Missoula, picked up me and my men, and we followed them up the Bitterroot. Just a couple days to a day behind as we were moving much quicker. Now, big hole battle. On the night of August 8th, about midnight. We ordered our men, we're about four miles on the backside of Battle Mountain. We ordered our men to divest themselves of their bedrolls, their coats, and their blouses. We had about 180 in all, if you count the, the, the Seventh Infantry, as well as some very brave volunteers from the Bitterroot. So we numbered about one. Midnight, we started down Trail Creek. Now, tail, trick, <clears throat> excuse me, tail, Trail Creek, as it goes around the mountain, 
as it comes out into the plain, it splits into two. One trail goes through the swamp towards where the Indian encampment is located. About 89 teepees are out there. The left hand, the northern trail, comes up and goes about 30 feet above the level of the valley, up along Battle Mountain. On Battle Mountain, that is where the Indians had their pony herd and had their animals. So one part of, Gibbon, of Gibbon's plan was to drive a wedge between the Indians and their animals. Without their animals, the Indians would be done. About 4 o'clock, Colonel orders us to begin to move forbidden the big hole. Understand, very sodden, beautiful willows growing alongside. Look, the willows look wonderful, nice, soft, and fuzzy when you're up above them. It's virtually impossible. And yet, we came up opposite the, on the opposite side of the river from the Indian encampment. Now, <coughs> further explain Gibbon's plan, and he has been criticized for this. He has been criticized for this. His plan was that at the break of dawn, we would launch our attack and we would fire low into the teepees. We would fire low to cause as much Injury, death, confusion as possible. The idea was to break their spirit, drive them out of their camp, away from those animals, and the war would be over there on the field of the big hole. That was the plan. It was dependent on surprise. Before we're ready, we're all there hiding in the willows on the other side of the river. Some half-blind Indian on horseback comes towards us. Now, we don't know. Did, was he going to check on the horses? Uh, was he out for an early morning excursion? Was he, did he sense us? Did he feel our presence? We will, we will never know. However, he saw us, or he saw what he thought was. And as he turned to go alert the camp, two shots rang out, which brought him down dead. Well, Chief Whitebird is close. He hears those shots. He understands that something much. So uh, the element of surprise is lost. So Colonel Gibbon orders us to attack immediately before we're totally prepared. And almost immediately, immediately, things go from bad to worse. <laughs> Lieutenant Bradley is in command of our left wing in charge of the volunteers and the dismounted cavalry. Bradley is shot and killed in the first minute of the battle. And without leadership, that left wing is useless. It won't do anything. So the center and the right wing attack and firing low into the village, trying to set fire to the teepees, but in the early morning dew, just created smoke and even more confusion. It became a hand-to-hand, -hand, short-range fire, violent 
just an incredible, frightful battle. And we almost won the day. We almost drove the Indians out of their camp. But then chiefs like Alakai, Whitebird, Lean Elk, uh, Josephine rallied the forces and began pressing us back. Now, I had been held in reserve. Very temporary reserve, as it turned out, because we were soon crossing the river to help our comrades. Now, were there atrocities that occurred? Yes, there's always going to be atrocities. But in an Indian battle, an Indian war, it's no quarter asked for, no quarter given. And who is and who isn't a combatant or a non-combatant? Is that young boy who picks up his father's rifle and starts firing at a soldier, is he a non-combatant? Take the case of Captain William Logan, my second in command at Fort Missoula. He had just, in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, killed the Indian. When that Indian's woman reached over, grabbed the pistol, and shot Captain Logan right between the eyes. Is she a non-combatant? There are also cases of mercy. For example, as we were crossing the river to help, there were women, and they're going, women only, women only. Some of my many men in the heat of battle were ready to fire and kill them. I ordered them not to. They were not the enemy. The enemy was in the village. No quarter asked for, no quarter given. It soon became very evident that we needed to retreat. We were in big trouble. The only place possible refuge was a bench of timber, a little point of timber, about 400 yards to our west. We slowly made towards that. I was placed in charge of the rear guard to protect our retreat. And as we would retreat, and as we had to leave our fallen soldiers, our brothers, on the field, the Nez Perce would come up and kill each wounded soldier. No quarter asked for, no quarter given. We managed to attain that bench that, 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 timber, that point of timber, with the charge. There were Indians there, but we managed to dislodge them with our full charge. And we began to set up our encampment. I mean, we were hiding behind anything that didn't move. Trees, boulders, we were digging our rifle pits uh, as the Indians surrounded us and started firing in. Now, at one point, the Indians were distracted when Colonel Gibbons' uh, mountain howitzer showed up. Now, mountain howitzer... Small cannon. Colonel Gibbon had one. Now, it takes seven men, trained as a team, to operate a mountain howitzer. Gibbon had six who had never worked before together at all. <laughs> How they managed to get two shots off is anybody's guess. But it relieved pressure for a while. That night was the most dreadful night of my life, I'm sorry, of my men's. We were scared to death. This could be another custom. We were short on ammunition. We didn't have enough ammunition had the Indians chosen to make another attack. We didn't have enough. 
We were freezing. We've been fighting through the cold, through the water. Big hole gets hot in mid-August, but nights get cold. We're tired. We've been on the move for 36 hours at one point. Total exhaustion. We were starving. Our only food were the, was the hard tank we had taken, stuffed in our pockets. That's long gone now, melted in the river. We were dying of thirst until finally three of the bravest soldiers, Company G, I ever met, volunteered to take all our canteens down to the river and fill them for us. They were so scared they forgot to drink while they were down there. <laughs> but they came back and they got us. Got us through. But the very worst part, the very worst part of the entire night, this haunts me every night. It will plague me the rest of my life. Not just our wounded, but also ills, suffering, and grief coming from us from the Indian camp. Sounds that will never leave. Now, the next morning, about 6, 6.30, an advanced runner from General Howard shows up. This indicates to the Nez Perce that it's time for them to leave. Now, they fired a few parting shots over us. We discovered there was only about eight or nine Indians who were keeping us down on it, and we thought there was about 100. Uh, but the Nez Perce left, leaving the battlefield to us. General Howard arrives a little bit later, a couple, no, um, two days later, and I am placed in charge of the hospital train. The hospital train we take to Deer Lodge, to uh, St. St. Joseph's, uh, it's the only surgical hospital uh, in the territory, and we had many. We had 39 wounded, two of which died. We also suffered 29 killed on the battlefield. The Nez Perce been estimated between 60 and 90. Uh, most of them civilian, old women, children, unfortunately. Now. The Nez Perce continued the trail, and I won't go into that. The story is long and involved. We returned to Missoula and Fort Shaw. Just in closing, it's to say that Colonel Gibbon has called this a great victory. I want no part of any such victory again in my life. We lost many good men volunteers, soldiers, brothers that, that day. It was tragic. It was sad. However, yes, it was a victory because Nez Perce let us have the field. But however, the Nez Perce suffered far worse than we did. What they lost, men, supplies, animals, they could never recover. We could replace our land. But they lost something there on the field of the big hole that they could never, ever hope to get again. On the field of the big hole, they lost hope. They would fight on for nearly two more months. But the, but the war was lost at the Battle of the I've gone on almost too long. Uh, so I want to thank you very much for your attention, uh, and I must be catching a train. Thank you. <laughs>